This is BTS with CTV Behind the Scenes, Behind the Stories we bring you from the CTV Vancouver Newsroom. My name is Penny Daflos, and I'll be your guide behind the curtain, which takes us to the desk of our managing editor. This is CTV News. It wasn't until that ferry reached Vancouver Island that emergency response teams made their move. And we should warn you, some of the images are graphic. TV news stories can be so powerful precisely because viewers see something rather than reading or hearing about it. But sometimes those visuals are too much. A Vancouver Island cab driver has lost part of his finger after he was attacked by a passenger. We've blurred the images of his injury, but a warning, they may be disturbing to some viewers. Someone has to decide what crosses the line and how much to hold back from viewers. Well, a warning now, this next video contains graphic content. For the first time, we're seeing a horrifying daytime shooting in Kelowna seven years ago that killed notorious gangster Jamie Bacon. Those warnings and how much to show come at the direction of Ethan Faber, who joins us for the first time on BTS with CTV News. Thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here. So most listeners aren't going to be familiar with the management structure of a TV newsroom. So if you could just start out by explaining what it is you do, because managing editor, assistant news director, you wear a couple of hats in the newsroom. Yeah. So basically, I try to um, keep an eye on the editorial plan each day, sort of how are we going to tell stories? Who are we going to interview? What's the um, approach we're going to take? What kind of tone? Basically, in the morning, we have an assignment editor who sort of launches the planes, if you want to use that as a metaphor. Um, As a managing editor, I help land them safely on the runway at the end of the day. And part of your job, though, also includes dealing with uh, viewer complaints, people who may have seen something that they don't want to see on the air because there's a lot of, uh, it's the news, and sometimes there's sensitive material, and so we have to think about what to show and what not to show. How do you decide what we show and what we don't show? I know that's a big question, but... uh, Well, it is, and it is exactly another one of the things you do if you're a managing editor, is you are responsible for upholding the policy of your news organization, but we also follow codes. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people know this about journalists, but we actually spend a lot of time talking and analyzing what we do to make sure that we're being responsible, that we're being ethical, not just uh, legally sound, but that we're uh, properly doing our jobs uh, as members of the community, but also representing sort of what we consider is the public interest as journalists. So deciding what to put on TV and deciding who to interview and then what not to put on TV is always a really complicated process. And I can walk you through it if you want. Sure, absolutely. So I kind of call it sort of your tough calls um, decision-making process. So let's say you've got um, some video uh, that's graphic or disturbing, or maybe you've got a story and the subject matter itself is graphic and disturbing and troubling. I usually start with, what does your gut say? And so it's interesting, like you hear the term gut check. I actually try to do that myself. I ask myself, what do I feel about the story? And if I'm feeling uncomfortable and if I'm feeling nervous, uh, then I know it's time to kind of go to the next step in the tough call process on what are we going to show? What are we not going to show? And the next step is to consult. So as you know, in a newsroom, it's a collaborative process. So I try not to make difficult decisions in a vacuum. Um, I try to ask around the newsroom, what do you think about this video? You know, look at this. Here's a, you know, let's say a dead body at a gang shooting. 
how do you feel about what you see there? Uh, and I have other people watch it with me. And I al- always try to consult widely. So I, la- I like to bring in a lot of voices around the newsroom to make sure that we're not sort of in our own echo chamber. So I want to bring in younger people. I want to bring in moms. I'm a dad myself. But I, I want to get a lot of voices and start to sort of hear what people are feeling and how they're reacting. You know, sometimes you can tell right away, we'll be in a a board meeting or our news boardroom where we have a lot of our story meetings and we'll put the video up on a TV and we'll say, and hopefully no one's seen it yet, and we'll play it. If you hear people gasping or people kind of covering their eyes, you might have a problem there because we don't want people to turn the channel. I'm thinking that with the the other day, we had the story of that woman who was uh, mauled by a dog. The wounds a dog left on Shelby Kernahan McNeil's legs will not easily heal. She thought she was going to die. Her sister, Kim Taminga, still in shock as she described the unprovoked sudden attack in this strip mall parking lot in Langley Tuesday night. She got out of her truck and uh, was presented with a a very large fawn-colored dog. Um, who didn't growl at her, uh, didn't do anything, but just attacked and got a hold of her right leg. McNeil got her leg out and curled into a ball, but the huge Mastiff-type dog continued to bite her legs and her buttocks. She was screaming. She described in a Facebook post, the dog shook me like a rag doll. It's such a tough thing as, as the reporter as well. You want to let people understand just how badly she was injured, but like it, it literally turns your stomach. Like That's something that you shouldn't have to see uncensored because the injuries were so severe. Well, and the word censored is, is you hit it right on the head there because we're in this strange, we're always in this strange conflict with ourselves as journalists because we, by nature, don't want to censor anything. Mm-hmm. Um, journalists are libertarian when it comes to free speech and the public's right to know what's happening, to know the the uncensored truth. Newspapers used to say this, we start from the premise of we will publish mm-hmm. and then we work from there to see if this is an exception to that to that rule. So with the gory pictures, you have a, a woman's leg. It's got 85 staples in it. I mean, it looks like hamburger. Is that important to show unblurred to tell the story? Do people need to see the exact details of this horrific injury with all the blood and all the gore and the bone and the skin? Do you want to see that on the news? Should you see that on the news? Is it essential to explaining the severity of this dog attack? I would say with a little bit of blurring, you still have the same effect. And so sometimes we decide, however, you need to see it Um, and we will warn people. And so to take it beyond the gut check and the consultation with other people in the newsroom and the other voices, we also have codes of conduct, as I mentioned earlier. So we've got to go through and follow um, the RTDNA code of conduct, which is a, a news directors association. There's a Canadian association of broadcasters. They have a code of conduct. They're called graphic conduct codes. And they actually say very specific things like we will warn people in advance. So that's something you're going to hear on TV a lot. And that's us following the code. It's, it means that someone in the newsroom has made a decision that you're about to hear or see or learn about something that's disturbing, but we've decided it's journalistically important for you to see it. And the way uh, we follow our codes, and it makes a lot of sense, is to say, you should be warned. 
you might find this disturbing and give that person who's watching an opportunity to change the channel, get the kids out of the room. And, you know, that's another issue, too, because legally there's something called the Broadcast Act in Canada. Canadian broadcasting is very regulated, and I have to keep an eye on that, too. And the Broadcast Act is very clear that we have to be extra careful around graphic content in the early parts of the day. It's not till after 10 o'clock that you might hear uh, some graphic language and see shows and say, wow, I didn't I didn't know they could say that word on TV. Well, check the time. It's usually later at night. But at six o'clock, five o'clock, the times of a lot of our newscasts were earlier in the day. And so the regulator, the government has decided kids are awake They might be in the room uh, and we have to be sensitive to that fact, too. So it's a it's it's a tricky tightrope that we walk. And blurring isn't just for something graphic, because you and I have discussed many times. I remember um, I I came to you once with a whale that had been tangled up in some uh, fishing rope. And it was horrendous to see, and I was asking you if we should blur it, and I remember you told me that people will never forgive you for showing an animal in distress. It's not just people's injuries, it's it's animals as well. So I guess let's touch on that first before I move on to the next part. Well, in a way, what you're talking about, I think, is community standards. So you have to be, as a broadcaster, sensitive to the community where your audience lives. So that's another factor. So as you can see, it's a really gray area. Um, so you have to ask yourself, is this something that's going to offend people and um, make them angry at you, the broadcaster? Not Rather than whoever's responsible for injuries or something like that. I mean, we don't want people to turn the channel. uh, And that's got to be a factor, too. But sometimes we will decide something is so editorially important. Um, and I can think of a, of a gangster who was shot one time in, a, in the lobby of a Burnaby hotel. And he, it was a dead body in the middle of the day lying in the front lobby of a hotel in Burnaby, uh, gunned down right in front of people coming in and out of the hotel. We decided actually to show part of that corpse, not gratuitously, we thought, but it was editorially relevant that the community needed to know what's going on, the public danger that that represented, not just the horror. And that's another important part about graphic video. We follow another rule, which is it needs to be very editorially specific. So the term gratuitous becomes really important around tough calls like this. If you start showing that body that I just mentioned in the lobby over and over again in a newscast uh, and you see it repeated, that crosses into, are you being gratuitous in the use of that disturbing image? Have you gone beyond saying, you know, like I said, you need a warning and telling your viewers, we're going to show you something that's going to be disturbing, but we think it's really important because this crisis is putting the public at risk. Now you have an editorial reason. You might show it carefully with some discretion, not too close up, avoid gore, but you can see, yes, that's a dead body lying in a Burnaby hotel and then move on. Don't keep coming back to it. So we also have to be careful about how often we show images and for how long. As you can see, it's a really juicy, um, complicated question. But on a personal level, it's one of the most interesting parts of my job because I I never know what the right answer is going into it. And the process of getting to hopefully the right decision, uh, I find really stimulating just as a journalist. It's interesting. It's difficult. But hopefully uh, you end up 
uh, making the right call. Well, it's like the law. I mean, there's a framework there to figure out, but each case is literally unique. So it's the application. How do you handle that? It's every situation is so different. And, and switching gears, it's not just goriness, because we had a, a situation earlier this week where a bunch of teenagers had climbed on a train. It starts with people climbing between the train cars, but the shocking video escalates. Two boys who appear to be teenagers climb underneath it as it idles in Fort Langley. Five seconds later... If that was my child and they were putting themselves in harm, I I would be heartbroken. We chose to blur those images as well, even though that was clearly something that wasn't graphic. So why did we choose not to show the faces of those teenagers? So that is a great example of another gray area, and that's children on the news. We do have a policy at CTV where if we're dealing with children 12 and under, we're extra cautious and we look for parental consent. To, to put kids like that on the news, to talk to them, uh, interview them. As they get into their teens, um, it becomes a judgment call. So in the case of those kids climbing over a train that had just stopped temporarily uh, in Langley and was going to move at any moment, these kids were putting their lives at risk and making a terrible decision. Uh, they looked really young uh, to me, uh, maybe 14. And I decided... They're making such a major mistake, and we didn't need to shame them. We thought the shaming risk was reasonable grounds to say, you know what, let's blur these kids. They're, I guess you could say, too young and dumb to know what they're doing. Do they need to be humiliated on the news for us to tell the story around danger at railroad crossings, bad decisions? On the other hand... You could have run that without blurring those kids and said, listen, we have every right to broadcast it just as everyone who was shooting that moment on their cell phones had the right to put it on Facebook. And that's the thing, too, is that we're living in an era where oftentimes the video that we do have is coming from uh, widespread public exposure. But I feel like for us, if we're going to present it through for, from CTV, there has to be something different. It can't just be the Facebook standard, which is if you've got a, a smartphone, you can upload it, and that means that you should be able to show it to everybody. Exactly right. That's This is the whole point of the conversation, I think, is we do actually have standards. But the standards, like I say, with younger kids gets a little tricky. Um, I had a very angry father phone me maybe a year ago. There uh, had been a sexual uh, assault on a kid going to uh, high school uh, here in Metro Vancouver. And the, and the sexual assault suspect was still at large. So kids were being warned uh, to be vigilant co- to coming and going from their, from their local high school. And we interviewed some teenage girls about what they were doing to protect themselves. And they talked to us eloquently and intelligently about the fact that they were walking with friends, using a buddy system, not being alone, avoiding the shortcuts through the woods. Uh, And we decided, and these were kids probably 15, maybe 14, we decided these are intelligent kids. They're making intelligent comments. They're speaking to us in a public place, and that's really important. We don't go on the school grounds where they have a reasonable expectation of privacy. We do it in a public place. And, and the camera's so large, it's not like it's surreptitious or something. It's not a secret. We're identifying ourselves. It's all... No. And so, you know, I could see another newsroom deciding to blur those kids. But our newsroom, I decided, and we decided, 
that these were intelligent young people speaking about something that was editorially relevant to the community, and they were making some good points about how to be safe. Anyway, the father phoned me. He was outraged of one of those girls that he said, I can't believe you put my daughter on the news without my permission. And he was under the impression that with a child, you don't have the right to interview a child and put that child on television without the parent's permission. And I explained to him that's not true. So I had to kind of go back legally. But what I really wanted to explain to this father, and I don't know that I uh, changed his mind, but I did try my best to explain to him that young people have the right um, to have their voices expressed. And if you have an issue with that as a parent, then parent your child differently and tell them, don't talk to the media. Don't talk to people with cameras. If that's the kind of um, family that you want to run, that's totally your right. 16-year-olds have the right to drive. And I've said this to many angry parents who don't like seeing their kids on the news. And as a society, we've decided we can give those 16-year-olds significant responsibility uh, with a driver's license. Well, let's hear their opinions on other issues too. And uh, in fact, I think you could even make the point that young people deserve to be on the news more often. Um, They often don't show up on the news unless they're doing something dumb, like running across a train at a railroad crossing. So sometimes there's a really good argument there to get their opinion about things that are happening in the community. But young people, risky. And we have to follow, again, our own policies around those kids that are really young. And then as they get older, uh, we have to make a judgment call. Um, Is this going to harm them? Is this going to shame them? Um, Or is this editorially relevant? And then, of course, we have to be careful not to break the law because young criminals and young suspects uh, in criminal investigations are protected from being identified by the law. So we also have to watch ourselves there. So if we have a young person committing a possible crime and we know there's a criminal investigation, then we will protect the identity. But all those other cases where we want to hear from young people and get their point of view and their perspective on the news, uh, we do it. Well, and I find that they often have a lot to say that I wasn't expecting. I mean, I'm in my late 30s now, and so I've just been out of touch with that world for so long. Our, our entire newsroom it's kind of 30 and above. So I think it's important to sometimes get that perspective that we're not expecting. Sometimes it is a surprise what they have to say. And I I think it's important that we do give them that platform. I mean, the most um, controversial example that I can think of, of of speaking to young people occurred when there was a date. Well, it wasn't a date rape. It was sort of like a a group sexual assault on a girl at a party out in the Tri-Cities years ago. And it was video uh, recorded and shared on social media. I don't know if you remember that story. I do, actually. Okay, so when that happened and there was a big investigation, we spoke to uh, teenagers at the school that was associated with that attack on that girl. And we spoke um, to some older teens, grade 11, grade 12, 16, 17, 18, young men who expressed very little sympathy for the girl. And uh, there's a bit of what I thought sounded like victim blaming. Mm-hmm. We put those young men on the news uh, and we did not blur their faces. And one of them was up for a scholarship in university and his father phoned and he was outraged um, that we had put that on the news. But I explained to him again, this was a young adult, clearly at least 17 years old, maybe older. We send kids to war who are 18 in this country. So if you're 17 years old and you're speaking to us about an important issue like sexual assault, 
uh, and the sharing of sexualized images on social media amongst young people, which of course re-victimizes young people. And you say something um, that we think helps us understand the dark side of that story and the mindset that that might lead to this sort of horrific event occurring. If we're hearing from young men who are justifying that, we put it on the news. We'd be remiss not to. If that's the attitude that's out there, how could we not put that out there? At that point, the young person is a responsible young adult who is saying something uh, that helps us understand the story. So we're not looking at this from exploitation. We're not being gratuitous in the use of that comment. We're trying to help people understand what's happening in their community. And again, that is our our basic responsibility as journalists. We say we hold a mirror up to our community. Sometimes what's in the mirror isn't pretty. And that's, that's sort of the fine line we walk. How much of the ugliness do we reflect back in that mirror? So we've established there's the uh, goriness is a reason for blurring. Uh, youth is a reason for, for blurring. Uh, the third major category is, you know, there's been so many examples. I'm thinking creep catcher videos. The incident took place yesterday playing out live over Facebook. A man punched, tackled and hogtied after allegedly trying to meet a minor for sex. The parents saying vigilante justice was the only option after police ignored their concerns. There was a, a case where... Um, People had been sharing on social media some uh, images of someone they suspected was responsible for a sexual assault. I think it was out in Surrey. We blurred those images as well. We blurred the creep catchers. Explain why it is that we will blur those images, even though it does appear in the creep catchers video. Sometimes those lead to uh, criminal charges. So that's another that, that could be a separate podcast in and of itself, and it probably will be. But just in the context of blurring, if you could just explain why we appear to protect people doing something bad sometimes. Yeah, well, the creep catchers videos are posted unblurred by creep catchers, and then they show up on our newscast blurred. And boy, do people get angry about that. Um, The creep catchers are extremely popular, and we're aware of that. And when I look at the comments, when we post a story about a creep catcher sting on Facebook, which is where you can go to comment, Uh, about stories on CTV, Um, many of the comments say, how dare you protect this scumbag? Why are you protecting the criminals Uh, by blurring them? Creep catchers didn't. Well, it comes back to standards. So at a news organization, we have standards to make sure we're not breaking the law and that we're not being inaccurate. And In a case of a creep catcher sting, we don't have all the background. We only have creep catcher's word that the text messages that that they say were sent were sent by this person. And we don't know. Did they target the wrong person that day? Is it really the guy that they say is a sexual predator or is it a case of mistaken identity? And we having no context have to be careful not to defame people and accuse them of things that we we don't know for sure they're guilty of. So that's why you sometimes see creeps that we think are creeps blurred on the news because we have a higher standard to make sure that before we identify somebody and say 
probably just about the worst thing you can say about someone, that they're a sexual predator, that A, we know it's true, and B, we know it's true. It's, it's the reason we don't show them. We just don't know that it's true. And it's so easy to make those allegations on social media. You can post a photo of anybody and say, this person did X, Y, Z. There's no way to verify it. And the moment that we put the CTV news, uh, we associate that with any image that gives it a legitimacy that we don't know if that's there just because anybody can post anything they want to social media. The time that we unblur a creep catcher's video, we unblur them. And you'll notice that if you watch us all the time, you'll notice, well, sometimes CTV does blur the target of a creep catcher sting, but then they don't. Well, if you're seeing somebody on a creep catcher's video unblurred being targeted on CTV news, it means we've confirmed the facts. And guess how we do that? We wait till charges are laid. And when a charge is laid of um, being a sexual predator, sexual luring, sexual interference, attempted sexual interference, when we see an actual criminal charge with a real name next to it filed in court, then what we have to do is confirm, is that guy in that video the same guy who's named in that charge? And to do that, we have to do our, our groundwork, our legwork. And in the case of unblurred creep catchers videos that we've showed, we've actually gone to the homes of the person who's been charged, who we think is the same person in that video. And we've waited until he actually comes walking out the door and we walk up and we say, excuse me, are you so-and-so? And then we have confirmation or we find a next door neighbor to a couple of them, we like double sourcing, point at the picture and say, yes, that is so-and-so. That actually is the, the same person that you're asking about. At that point, we've got confirmation. And in the case of the Surrey suspect that was, uh, there was sexual assault break-ins in, into various homes, it was the police asking us not to identify his face and his clothing because they were worried about tainting a, um, a potential witnesses, were they not? Yeah, so you've opened up another can of worms, <laughs> which is what you do. So the police Police often ask us to blur things or not report things. And um, in the case of that's right, there was a recent sexual assault uh, in Surrey and neighbors uh, near the crime scene had taken some cell phone images of a break and enter suspect who was in the area right around the same time as the assault. Um, And guess what? The pictures that they showed us matched almost exactly the description that the police had released. And so we were at the point of saying, this is interesting. And we were going to show that. Here's a guy who was in the backyards, matches the description. uh, And the police phoned us and they said, please don't show him. And here's how we handle those requests from the police. We need the police to make a compelling argument that it is in the public interest at that point not to show something. And so they can't just say, trust us. And that sometimes happens, and it's a bit of an education process with the police that we find, um, where we explain to them, listen, our priority is the public's right to know information uh, and to, to know what's happening in their community. And you just saying, please don't show something as, a, as an investigator isn't enough. We want specific details. So they did. In that case, the RCMP said, listen, we have witnesses that we need to describe the suspect. So could you hold it for one day? 
Because it would also impact a potential prosecution as well, which is what people would want in a case where someone's done something serious. In that case, it was, again, a judgment call. Um, Sometimes those requests still won't convince us to uh, censor something. But in that case, um, they made a pretty specific argument that we've got some witnesses we need to interview right now um, and we don't want to taint them. And so we decided to compromise and um, blurred that image for one day and then unblurred it the next day. So sometimes that'll take up a huge part of, of my day is having that sort of back and forth with someone who's saying, don't broadcast this. And um, if they can make a, a strong argument, then sometimes we won't. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface, but I really hope we've explained to people how it's not just a, a given unless it's a, a youth or even if it's a youth, it's it's a really complicated process. Anytime somebody sees something on the news that they're not seeing a clear image, I really hope that we've expressed to them why that is and how much thought and effort goes into making those decisions because we don't do it lightly, at least not in this newsroom. No, I don't think journalists in general do it lightly at all, which is which is interesting because there I think there's an impression sometimes um, that the news media just throw stuff on TV, whether or not they know it's true or without a lot of thought. And I find that people um, are often very surprised to hear just how much agonizing we do over what we broadcast. And in fact, at conventions and journalist associations, we are constantly revising our codes of conduct, updating it with social media and the digital world and the process of analyzing, are we doing our jobs responsibly, is a, is a process that's always ongoing in journalism. In fact, I have a feeling that journalists spend more time asking themselves if they're doing the right thing than just about any other profession. How many dentists go to a convention and ask themselves, is dentistry hurting or harming society? We do that all the time. So it's funny because it's quite contrary to the image that I sometimes hear that we're just a bunch of hacks throwing anything on the television without giving it any thought. The actual opposite is true. We spend a ton of time agonizing, sometimes over the tiniest little decisions, to turn down the sound or not show an image just for a few seconds. Sometimes that can take hours of conversations. So people can judge as to whether or not we're doing a good job at it, but we we certainly do try our best. Thank you so much for being on this episode of BTS. It was great to be here. Thanks. I also want to thank Adam Lee for his support with archival audio this week. And thank you for joining us on BTS with CTV. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover on a future podcast? Email me, bts at ctv.ca. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe for more insights, tidbits, and the stories behind the stories. I'm Penny Daflos.